questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. Here on the podcast, we chat with experts across many disciplines of science to explore how our interconnected world is being reshaped by the COVID-19 pandemic. Find us on our website at dearpandemic.org. I'm your host, Dr. Malia Jones, hybrid social infectious disease epidemiologist at UW-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory and editor-in-chief at Dear Pandemic. I'm here today with Benjamin Hale, PhD, who is an associate professor in the philosophy department and the environmental studies program at the University of Colorado at Boulder. His primary area of research interest is environmental ethics, and he also studies applied ethics normative ethics, and even meta-ethics, according to the UC Boulder website. Much of his recent work centers on ethical and environmental concerns presented by emerging technologies. And today we're going to be talking about some ethical considerations of the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hale. Thanks for having me, Malia. Nice to to meet you. Nice to meet you. So you mostly write about environmental ethics and disaster ethics. Can you give us an overview of the kinds of subjects that you deal with? Yeah, I can. Uh, Let me just, let me preface it though by saying that I do write on environmental ethics, but the position I've kind of carved out for myself is a little different than many other environmental ethicists. And I sort of write about this in my book, but basically uh, where most environmental ethicists are sort of concerned to sort of establish the value or the the um, the importance of nature in some way or another, essentially presuming that, um, you know, if we establish the value of nature, then we will know what to pursue. I basically <laughs> spend a lot of my work um, looking at the ways in which nature can be disvaluable, right, or bad for us, right? So, uh, I mean, my I wrote a whole book on this and I've written multiple papers on this. I basically am kind of consumed or obsessed or interested in the ways in which nature can be bad. Um, Now, you might not think that's the kind of thing that an environmental ethicist would be concerned about, but I think we should be environmentalists despite the fact that nature can sometimes harm us in some way, right? So um, for a long time, I've been looking at things like pandemics, um, but also natural disasters and natural catastrophes like uh, tsunamis and uh, earthquakes and and fires and whatnot. Um, Those have always been very interesting to me. So um, you know, this is a this is a kind of a convergence point for me, at least the pandemic is a convergence point for me in this uh, with my uh, or converges my interests in ethics and policy uh, with my interests in um, in natural disasters. Um, of course, I have a wide range of other material that I also focus on, too, and I'm happy to talk about any of that. But um, I suppose I should add that I do work on ethics and policy. So a lot of my additional research on top of the um, discussions about uh, the disvalue of nature uh, is rooted in uh, attempts to try to make sense of the ethical or normative dimensions of public policy tools like um, like um, market failures or moral hazards or attempts to try to manipulate or um, our collective outcomes through um, through market mechanisms or something along those lines. But um, by and large, that's roughly where I, I sit in the environmental ethics literature, somewhere between ethics policy and the environment. 
Interesting. So I'm just wondering for, for those of us who haven't studied ethics since our undergraduate degrees, like me, um, can you, can you like give us an example of where the rubber hits the road there um, in terms of the disvalue of nature? Yeah, uh, of course, this is complicated. Um, you know, if I'm, I'm going to go in without any uh, general, uh, you know, background in ethics, but the, the, the I guess, I guess let, let me just put it this way. So the, the primary uh, or the prevailing thought, I think, uh, among many inside the environmental community in the environmental ethics community as well, uh, is that if you can establish the value of nature, you say, let's say trees are beautiful, um, nature is a great place to recreate, animals are important, wildlife is uh, valuable in some way or other, um, then we presumably, like if you can demonstrate that it has some value beyond simply, let's say, economic value or market value, uh, so let's say a, a moral value, then you just kind of know what to do. You kind of should promote it, right? So this is a mm -hmm. this prevailing thought, right? And a lot of people take that to be their task. And I think if you if you sort of search around in the environmental policy literature or look at a lot of environmental groups, you'll see them doing this quite a bit. They say like, oh, our majestic redwoods, you know, or our oceans sure. are so pristine and wonderful. And then the thought just follows from that, presumably, that we should take action that is um, to preserve or to protect preserve. or preserve sure. these things. Yeah. But I think, you know, um, you know, first of all, this doesn't resonate with a lot of people. I mean, if you've, you know, I don't know what your temperament is personally, but, um, you know, some people don't like camping. They don't like going out in the woods, right? There certainly can be scary uh, to, to experience nature um, uh, because nature will do some harm to us. Like bears will attack us. You know, mountain lions sometimes will, you know, pop out of the, the weeds or something. They'll eat our pets or we get sick. I mean, this is a big thing right now, right? I mean, nature is, you know, the source of the uh, uh, the pandemic in many respects. Um, obviously, there's a lot of human activity that's maybe facilitated the growth and development of the pandemic, but um, but largely, uh, you know, it's a natural phenomenon. Um, so it's bad. Why should we preserve nature? And my kind of basic thesis is, well, we should preserve nature because in a way we're we're capable of making decisions, deliberate decisions about what to do. And that distinguishes us from like the animal kingdom. We're not the kinds of creatures that just go out and attack <laughs> when we feel threatened. Yeah, ways of coordinating our activity. Right. Some people do, right? And it's a little bit more animalistic, I think, when they do act that way. But... I was actually thinking about your example of camping. I love camping. Okay. Uh, but, but I have often reflected that I might love the idea of camping more than I love actually camping because often when I'm actually camping, I'm being attacked by mosquitoes and I'm dirty and it's very dusty or it's raining and fairly miserable actually. Yeah. I mean, I also have had incredible experiences in nature and, and done a lot of camping myself. That's been rewarding. And of course, I've also been in terrible situations where it's a lot of mosquitoes or it's very cold or rainy or wet. It really can be very harsh, right? So the the thought that you know the thought of camping, you know, in, a, in a many ways, is like a an artifact of our technology. It makes it our technologies make it possible for us to experience and enjoy camping. Right. Two hundred, five hundred years ago, people would have thought it was crazy to go out going camping, right? That's that would be madness. It is a little crazy now that you mention it. Right. Anyway. So. Anyway. Okay. So, returning to this to COVID nineteen and the current situation. What kinds of ethical issues do you think are most pressing right now as we're trying to face this unprecedented pandemic challenge? Yeah, so um, this is a complicated question for sure. Um, I guess the ones that I feel like I'm rubbing up against the most are concerns about 
um, about fairness um, to others uh, and placing demands on others who are not in the same position uh, that you might be in. So for instance, I guess I'm thinking about um, like schools reopening, for instance. There are a lot of parents who are, you know, really enthusiastic, let's say maybe even forceful about opening schools because they're worried about the well-being of their children or the education of, or the, like, what kind of social dynamics they might be deprived of, or maybe they need, they're worried about their own, um, you know, capacity to work at home or, or whatnot. There are a lot of really serious concerns um, associated with homeschooling or teaching remotely or whatnot. But um, what, what worries me is that um, in many respects, when parents are calling upon school districts to open the districts, it seems to me they're essentially acting, you know, in the interest of their most immediate um, family members and not considering the wider impact of opening. So I think, you know, opening schools, at least from the research that I've read, suggests or at least creates more pathways for this pandemic to proliferate, uh, potentially jeopardizing the community. And it seems to me that individuals have to act responsibly um, when making demands upon school districts. You don't want to open up more pathways for the pandemic to spread. Um, there are additional demands placed on uh, faculty and staff at school districts, um, teachers and, and staff members who will be then required to go into school. I think there are serious ethical questions here, fairness questions about whether parents who might want their children to go to school would themselves be comfortable going into a school room for six to eight hours a day with, say, 15 to 30 kids, you know, essentially breathing on them. Kids who are, you know, like kind of poorly coordinated goats, uh, you know, <laughs> they're not going to be wearing masks cooperatively. Uh, you want to you, you be careful about making demands upon people like this when there are other mechanisms by which those kids might be um, educated or the educational mission of the schools might be fulfilled. Certainly deficiently, right? I think that's probably the case, right? That online or remote education, there are many, many downsides to that. But I think that um, it's possible for us to at least fill in some gaps as we do in our work world um, through, uh, through, let's say, remote, remote learning um, that may be less good than they otherwise would be, but nevertheless don't place the same kinds of demands on teachers different mm -hmm. kinds of demands not health demands or whatnot so i think those are like, at least for me those are the most kind of like front and center ethical issues there are obviously a lot of other issues mask wearing social distancing what kind of demands we can place on our neighbors um questions about the um responsibilities on say high-level bureaucrats mid-level bureaucrats um you know and individual actors whether we can devolve uh, responsibility for this pandemic down to the individual or to the local, local level. I don't think we can. I don't think we should. But mm -hmm. we are doing that. And I think that's a major problem for us. Yeah. But I don't know. I could go any direction with this. So please stop me and, and then we'll just go in, in any way you want. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea of, um, of fairness to others. And then you also brought up some issues around um, individual choice and what can we you know at the individual level what can we expect of our neighbors um yeah. and maybe we can come back to to both of those questions this sort of leads into this thing that i really want to talk to you about in 2014 mm -hmm. you wrote this article in slate in which you talked about the ebola virus outbreak that was happening in africa at that time yep and in that article, you argued that what's truly horrible about Ebola is that it's transmitted 
well, it's transmitted through contact with bodily fluids, but the way that you come into contact with someone's bodily fluids is if you're taking care of them when they're sick. And so uh, it's transmitted through the act of taking care of a loved one. And then it carves out these transmission chains through families and caregiving. Yeah. And I have to say, reading this article now was, I found it chilling. And I'll put a link to the article in the links for this episode. But if it's okay, I'd like to read a quote from this article. So you're talking about the public health advice at the t uh, during the Ebola outbreak, which was to avoid touching a loved one who is sick or touching someone who is sick and avoid giving love and comfort to someone who, who's dying of Ebola. So this is the quote. This virus preys on care and love, piggybacking on the deepest, most distinctively human virtues. Affected parties are almost all medical professionals and family members snared by Ebola while in the business of caring for their fellow humans. And then further down in the article, you say, humans will never give this up. We cannot give this up for it is fundamental to who we are. The more that medical personnel require this of people without also giving them methods to manifest care, the more care and compassion will manifest in pockets outside of quarantine. And the more humanity that manifests unchecked, the more space this virus has to grow. Unchecked humanity will seep through the cracks and barriers that we build to keep our families safe. And if left to find its own way, will carry a lethal payload. So I was really struck by that in terms of some of the parallels that we're seeing with COVID-19 right now. What do you, what parallels do you see? Uh, I mean, there are a lot actually, and I have not revisited that essay in a while, um, though I am, you know, I do, I, I do, I don't often like what I write, but, but I like that essay quite a bit, uh, you know, or at least I have at least an author's kind of like uh, a reticence to return to stuff I've written because it's kind of embarrassing to go back and read. Sure, but, yeah. But um, that essay, yeah, did, it got a lot of attention at the time and actually even sparked a whole community of people who were trying to raise funds to, to address Ebola. Um, and I'm in contact with some of those people still today. Um, what, what, one thing that resonates, I mean, the, the primary focus of that essay was in part to say like, the medicalization of the virus or the, 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 our proclivity to think about viruses and epidemics um, primarily in medical or clinical terms, you know, really underdetermines the extent to which this manifests through our communities. And so we have to think considerably more broadly about the channels through which um, disease spreads. If we think about it primarily as sort of a contact tracing problem um, or a problem that can be solved technically or technologically even, then we just don't understand um, what's going on. So here's, a, here's another good case. I'll, I'll, I'll raise the question or the problem of the schools again, this time in universities. Um, you know, a lot of universities opened. I'm not sure what happened with your university, but the University of Colorado Boulder opened just recently. I mean, at the beginning of the semester, essentially to face-to-face -face instruction. We have a lot of hybrid cases and uh, hybrid classes. My class, I'm teaching hybrid. I'm teaching outside. Um, you know, for some of the day and then the rest of the time. And we've recently gone uh, back online. So we're remote now um, and it's working pretty well. You know, and the students I think are learning. But um, but the, the attempt on the part of the university administration, and of course I know a lot of these people, they're colleagues and friends, um, but the attempt was to try to make sense of the proliferation of the virus, primarily medically, right? We understand how virus particles trans are transmitted. We understand how they're picked up. And so they were trying to deal with ventilation and all of these kind of like physical barriers, right? Um, 
I think without really thinking so much about the human dimensions of the virus, um, not thinking so much about 18 to 22 year olds yeah. maybe entering into a climate in which they're not themselves personally affected that directly, who in which they're happy to see their friends, in which they've been cooped up for six months, in which they, of course, are just kids still, basically, you know, right. still yeah. totally in control of themselves. All of these factors are critical to understanding how pandemics spread. And so when we think that we can beat a virus strictly technically, right, without attending to the human dimensions, we humans are really good about outsmarting our own technical interventions. We do that routinely in multiple different areas, right? And this is, you know, this is one of the curiosities about so many problems, so many environmental problems as well, but, but you know, uh, epidemiological problems and public health problems. We are very good at strategizing our way around interventions. Mm -hmm. right? That's what people do. Especially uh, if, if they're inconsistent with what we want to be doing. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's all sorts. Yeah, lots of things are going on here. Like, you, know, you think about, I, I mean, there's a case of like some Iowa school district, I think, where they, um, there was a restriction in the state of Iowa on, uh, you know, spending more than 15 minutes beside a person, right? So these school districts in Iowa, I don't know if you read about this, um, they, they basically made a rule in the schools they said, okay, we can abide by that rule. And then they made all their students in the school basically get up every 14 minutes, stand up in the room and switch seats. So they wouldn't be sitting next to another student every more than 15 minutes, basically to abide by that rule. Sure, it's right. Misunderstanding this is a, as a rule of viral spread, right? And, and instead understanding it as a kind of a top-down bureaucratic rule or something uh -huh. that was supposed to govern human behavior for what is essentially no scientific reason. It's, it reminds me of the monkey's <laughs> paw, that one. That's an amazing example. What was the monkey's paw? Sorry. The, the fable of the monkey's paw where, uh, I, I mean, in a lot of fables where somebody makes a wish that's so specific that they end up getting something that was just not at all what they intended. Right, right. It's not clearly, clearly specified enough. One of the challenges that I've found trying to do pandemic communications is related to this. And it's, um, I have found that people, a lot of people struggle to generalize. When we, when we give specific advice, they struggle to generalize up. And then when we give general advice, they struggle to make it specific to themselves. And I'm wondering, and it comes back to that, how much of the demand can we put at the individual level to do, to do what it takes to control the pandemic? Yeah, I don't think we can put a lot of demand at the individual level for, for maybe that reason that um, it's not that I don't trust people to behave well, but I just think I understand that people are people and they have, you know, lots of varying concerns and needs and demands. And, you know, a lot of them don't have the bandwidth, let's say, to 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 generalize about the pandemic or they just they tune it out for a variety of reasons. Um, but I but I think more than anything, I mean, we're pretty good. Uh, I don't want to reduce us to like homo economicus, but I think we're pretty good self-interest maximizers. Like we're at least good at doing that, even though we maybe we have bounded rationality and we're limited in kind of the things that we can see. I think we're pretty good about pursuing our ends. And when somebody puts into place a, 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 a rule, right, that, that is not got some kind of like heft behind it, some kind of weight or some kind of like coordinating power, um, I think that we will do whatever we can to avoid abiding by that rule, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes rationalizing 
let's say mask wearing, right? It's like, I don't want to wear it because it's an inconvenience for me or because it's, you know, I'm for some reason, there's this belief that it will, you'll inhale your own carbon dioxide, uh, you know, and, and cause damage to yourself. Of course, that's ludicrous, but, uh, you know, that's a kind of a rationalization. People will take steps to wiggle out of suggestions, right? Essentially rules of thumb. And, um, and I guess more importantly, even if they are well-meaning, they may take, they may apply individual or distinct strategies themselves. Like say, I might apply one strategy, your family might apply another strategy, a third family might apply a third strategy. If we have three different strategies, any one of which, if all applied to get, if, if applied by everybody would work well, if we have three different strategies, at the same time in place or many more strategies in as many strategies as there are people we'll find that none of these strategies work right mm -hmm. because we have no way of coordinating amongst ourselves and that's a huge problem for resolving the pandemic so if i'm doing a lot of social distancing and you're doing a lot of like ventilation work and somebody else is doing a lot of like you know political lobbying and everybody's got these different strategies we basically have no coordination we have no mm -hmm. way of resolving this and this is a this is a phenomenon that requires significant coordination so we need to find i think we need to place responsibility at the at the top levels where people can coordinate and we have governments for that reason you know and we have we have systems in place and institutions that can help us achieve those objectives um right so one of the, i want to go back to this late article for one more minute one of the things that really struck me in this article is you were describing some of the responses to the ebola outbreak and there are some striking similarities to the reactions to COVID-19. Things like scam artists telling people that they can cure the disease. You know, right now we're working on a post on Dear Pandemic about essentially don't drink bleach because there's this rumor going around that drinking, it's not exactly bleach, but a, a related chemical can cure COVID-19. Um, conspiracy theories, flat out deniers that there is a pandemic, you know, very similar to some of the things we're seeing now. Why do people react like this in a in a crisis? Uh, goodness, I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I'm not in the I'm not in the uh, uh, in the descriptive like human behavior business, so I can't give you a good explanation for why why people are the way they are. Yeah, <laughs> any better than than a layperson might. But I mean, I, I guess my suspicion. So why do they why do they make things up and why do they take they take advantage of? Uh, the weaknesses or the the lapses in information provision is that kind of what you're asking yeah well you know i think so in the article my interpretation was you were making some kind of argument about there this is in part a response to having our humanity taken away and what i was going to ask you was mm -hmm. do you think yeah. this is why some people are so pissed about being asked to wear a mask because they feel like this is either an impingement on, well, people say it's an impingement on their personal freedoms, but I'm wondering if it's because we like to look at people's faces. Probably has something to do with that. I mean, I don't think that those kinds of objections, uh, I mean, let's just talk about the masks a little bit more narrowly because um, I'm trying to recall what I wrote in this article. Um, yeah, that's years okay. Ago. <laughs> yes. But- um, What, you don't remember it word for word? It was only six <laughs> years ago. <laughs> it is even though i like the article it's still painful to go back and read my own stuff but uh, so um yeah so i uh i think that there is i think we should take these kinds of objections seriously um i don't think it really amounts to a sort of a curtailment of one's liberty to insist that they wear a mask i think we're really 
but it's not it's not reasonable to think that we're not demanding something of other people or that we're not asking something of them it is an ask it's a serious ask and we're asking them to endorse that that idea right and to really follow through with it um and i think in many respects we're asking them to be courteous to us um there probably is something about wanting to see people's faces i feel that very strongly you know when I'm, i teach in a mask and i mean nothing i want to do more than just rip the thing off so i can talk to my students and can co uh, communicate with them this is when i'm teaching outside um i, I mean I, I get that um i think what uh in, in theory we want or what people who are objecting to um wearing masks are really objecting to is essentially being told what to do by some outside party without um without having some buy-in on their end um, and I'm not sure that there's a great way to, um, to cultivate buy-in, um, but I think uh, that should be at least one of our objectives. We want to get people to acknowledge the importance of masks and social distancing so that we can all be safe and so that we can beat this pandemic back successfully. Mm -hmm. And I think you do find in other cultures, I mean, certainly across Asia, but you know, even um, you know, many uh, Western European countries at this point now, you're finding people who are buying in a lot more readily than we've bought in in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in part that's a lot, you know, some of it has to do with political framing of this is primarily a problem of liberty. And here I'm using liberty very narrowly, which is just to say essentially curtailment of freedom to act. So there's an, a top-down party that says you have to do X, right? Let's say it's the government or it's the governor of a particular state or a, or some, you know, some person who is like pandemic related uh, uh, political official, um, that person says you have to do X and people just reject. They reject the idea of being told what to do, particularly in the United States. Um, what we really need to do, I think having rules like that mandates is important, but we have to also work on the other side of it, which is to cultivate the buy-in. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't have great, you know, I'm not, I'm not in this, the business of solving problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just <laughs> in the business of raising questions. About yeah, me that. neither, yeah, to okay. be honest. I just want to be clear about that. So yeah, I'm in the business of, of researching problems, not mm -hmm. solving them. So I heard you alluding to this a little bit. Do you think given the United States's, the way that we value individualism and personal freedom and, and reject that curtailing our liberty, which might go either way, right? People, I think may, maybe people would have rejected you're not allowed to wear a mask just as strongly as they would have rejected you have to wear a mask, right? It's just about being told. So do you think that we we can cultivate the common good that we need it to, to curtail the pandemic in this country? I do think we can. I do think we can. I think, I mean, a few things. So first, um, I do think this is maybe a uniquely sort of 21st century American phenomenon. I don't think it's been part of our, you know, the American cultural scene for, for all that long. Um, I think a lot of people are extremely confused about essentially philosophical or ethical categories. Um, this is my unique vantage, I suppose, in that I'm a philosophy professor. Um, so I, I tend to look at these kinds of questions. I think people are confused about freedom. I think they're confused about rights. I think they're confused about, which is not to say confused and misled, but rather just these are very complicated ideas, right? And so when somebody says we have to do X, um, you know, somebody in the government, that starts to look like a curtailment of freedom, but it's not necessarily a curtailment of freedom. I mean, it really is also an attempt to try to 
you know, loosen restrictions, right? Or to loosen the pressures of nature on us, right? I mean, if we can get rid of the pandemic or at least beat it back considerably and then do the responsible contact tracing work that needs to be done and set up institutions and, and systems to try to um, keep everybody safe, then then truthfully, that will be much more liberating, right? That'll be freeing. Right, right. right. We'll be able to leave our homes, you know, and uh, interact more uh, like we used to. So um, the objective here is, to try to free us up, but we're, we have different conceptions of freedom for one, or different conceptions of liberty, um, to a certain extent, different conceptions of rights. And we also have different strategies. And, get, and that goes back to that earlier question about how to be free. And we're facing that down right now, I think. I really don't think that most people are uh, mean, poor, mean bad or ill of one another. I, I don't think that's the case, but I do think that people feel impinged upon and we have to spend a lot of serious mental energy and and uh you know uh and work as a community to try to make better sense of questions about like freedom and and mm -hmm. um and responsibility um you know so i mean this is why i am interested in ethics mostly mm -hmm. because i'm interested in these questions um and i think they're important yeah, this question is really central to the work that I do in in normal times, capital N, capital T, because I study people who don't want to vaccinate their children, which oh, yeah. er erodes the common good, which is herd immunity for vaccine preventable diseases. So looking ahead and, and just thinking about a vaccine becoming available for COVID-19, I think that's going to be really important to cultivate, you know, a sense of responsibility and yeah. also buy-in to, to producing that common good. I have a whole chapter in my book um, in which I investigate. It's kind of a thought experiment. Um, the notion of a what I call a shmoo shot. It's, not, it's like a flu shot, but there's a whole scene uh, where I'm, I'm looking at the, the various reasons that people might reject a vaccination program. And, and um, there's a lot to say on this, but uh, I, I'll send you a, a copy of it. And um, it's, in my, it's in my book if you... <laughs> if yeah, I do want to read it. And for our yeah. listeners, tell us about your book. Yeah, so I mean, this just came up just as we were prepping for this, but uh, I happen to have a copy of it right here, um, and I do always keep it right beside my desk. This is my book is called The Wild and the Wicked. Uh, it's uh, on nature and human nature, published by MIT Press about uh, four years ago, um, really three years ago. Uh, it's basically about uh, how horrible nature is, and <laughs> and uh, and how despite um, the horrors of nature, we should still be environmentalists because we're human beings who can justify our actions and you know engage with one another cooperatively and take actions to um, make the world a more accommodating place despite the horrors of nature. Despite um, the horrors of nature, and so if you were going to write a new edition of your book now. Uh, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, what, what would you want to include in that chapter? What I would want to include, so I would include a different chapter, um, an additional chapter on um, what I've been writing on recently, which is the question of um, indeterminacy or determinacy and indeterminacy. And this is the idea that basically when we think that we can model human behavior and essentially in a predictive fashion and we can um, try, so we, we can say, for instance, say, here's how the pandemic is going to unfold and we'll look at the ways in which, um, you know, we look at the R naught and we look at the different kinds of interactions that people uh, have with one another, including, of course, the different social distancing restrictions and, and all of the different things that might influence the models. We see this with the IHME model and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, a lot of those models are thwarted by our activities uh, and our responses to the models themselves. And so this is this is an idea that I've been 
working with in a lot of other areas, but basically the moment that we produce information or we produce a policy, you know, in response to a model is the moment that the model becomes obsolete because that's a, because we humans individually and collectively take responses to models and take response and respond to policies in a way that effectively is strategically self undermining. Um, that's not to say we can't take action effectively, but rather that um, we just haven't explored the problem of indeterminacy in the in in nearly the depth that we need to explore it. Um, and it's a mistake for us to think, for instance, that we can go about addressing serious public health issues or public issues like environmental catastrophes um, at a level that that is uncoordinated. So this is kind of gets back to the point that I was making earlier. This is right. kind of what I'm focused on right now is indeterminacy. I'm sorry, that was a little complicated, but um, but no, it's fascinating. I'm yeah. I'm working on uh, in my research agenda. I'm I'm trying to include complexity studies and how yeah. the behaviors of individuals can aggregate up to produce these larger scale phenomena and then those larger scale phenomena trickle down and affect the individuals and the choice sets that we have, um, which is a, a subject or a way of thinking about science that is very much not deterministic. Right. Well, that and it's hard. It's very hard to wrap your head around these ideas because it's complicated. Very That's why they call it complexity science. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, j just to build on that, I mean, the one way that we've done it historically is just to frame it as a kind of stochasticity. Right. Say it's just randomness. Right. We don't know what's going to happen. But I don't think that's not true either. Right. We uh -huh. have other mechanisms for making sense of human behavior like reasons. Right. We can say there is a reason why somebody is doing this. And if we explore the reasons, those aren't going to show up in the data because you can't read reasons off of data. But if we look at the reasons, we'll get a different picture of what people are going to do. And I think that if you're going back to the university case, if we had really thought about the reasons of an 18 to 22 year old coming back to the university, um, we would see a vi we would we'd think very differently about what kind of interventions would be appropriate and what would not be appropriate and how wise it would be to open up a university in a global pandemic. Okay, that's your mic drop moment. We're yeah. going to sign off here. Yeah, and <laughs> I want to thank you very much for being here today. And I will put the links to your book, which is called The Wild and the Wicked on Nature and Human Nature by Benjamin Hale. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. And I'll put the link to that in the notes for this episode. Sounds great. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the I Have Questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. If you have a COVID question, you can submit it on our website at dearpandemic.org. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And subscribe to our podcast, I Have Questions, wherever you get podcasts or at anchor.fm slash dearpandemic.